This podcast has been produced as an educational resource for health professionals. It is recommended that people with concerns about their vision and eye health seek care from an appropriate health professional to support accurate diagnosis and management of any conditions. Welcome to the Optometry Australia Institute of Excellence podcast. We are committed to offer you quality, personalised education via a range of media, and every episode of this podcast will be worth CPD hours. Your host is Optometry Australia's Professional Development Manager, Simon Hanna. In each episode, Simon will be joined by a variety of interesting guests to discuss an array of appealing topics. Enjoy this episode of the podcast. Welcome to another Institute podcast episode brought to you by Optometry Australia's Institute of Excellence. Optometry Australia are very excited to bring you this channel of shorter CPD modules on varying themes and topics. My name is Simon Hanna, Professional Development Manager at Optometry Australia and your host for this podcast. Today, we're very pleased to have Steve Leslie with us discussing neurooptometry. Steve Leslie is in private practice in Western Australia, where he concentrates on care of vision and ocular problems related to health issues or subsequent to acquired brain injuries following stroke, head trauma, and neurological disease such as multiple sclerosis and Parkinsonian conditions. He served as national president of the Optometrist Association of Australia 1991 to 1992 and as National Councillor of the OAA for 15 years and was awarded life membership of the OAA WA in 1997. He is currently National President of the Australasian College of Behavioural Optometry, ACPO. He is regularly called on to provide medical legal reports for police and lawyers regarding clients who have suffered head injuries due to motor vehicle accidents, falls or assaults as well as expert opinions in medical legal issues involving optometrists. Welcome to the episode today, Steve. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, Simon. It's good to be here. I hope you've been doing well in these turbulent times, and um, we do appreciate you giving us some of your time this afternoon over there in sunny WA. Steve, for us to begin, we want to talk about a little bit of neurooptometry, and I think um, one of the biggest issues is that people tend to, and I know you, you've emailed me about this before as well, People tend to get the, the terminology a bit mixed up or people tend to find that the terminology is a little bit confusing. So can you maybe for our listeners explain the difference between neurooptometry and neurorehabilitative optometry? Sure, Simon. It's a common misconception and it's probably the simplest way to approach it is that neurooptometry really involves the diagnosis and assessment anyway of neuro of neurological issues so it's mm-hmm. sort of like neuro ophthalmology neuro op, neuro rehabilitative optometry is about the treatment of issues and helping people to their symptoms to improve and to get better you know to be able to function better in life mm-hmm. so if you look at for instance the Australian College of Optometry has a specialist certificate course in the management of neuroophthalmic disorders and really, having done that course, it's really about diagnosis, about assessment of things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, um, um, optic atrophy, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas the work that we do is really lots of diagnosis involved, lots of testing, but it's really about d- differentiating the visual problems and treating them so that people can use their vision to function. Um, so neurooptometry rehabilitation really involves a lot of things like acquired brain injury, concussion, mm-hmm. whiplash, and the visual issues that come from those conditions and the symptoms they cause and how that affects people's ability to, 
to what we call ADLs of activities of daily living. Yeah, um, okay. So to, do, to work in this field, you really need a solid background in accommodation and virgins dysfunctions because they're the most common effects of acquired brain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to know eye movements, about visual processing, how cranial nerves work. Obviously, you really have to know your ocular health assessment like all optometrists. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of visual fields, so you really have to know the how neurology can affect visual fields. Um, and But there are some, shall we say, more complicated issues which people often don't think about in optometry. You know, we because central and peripheral vision work together to give you a sense of where you are in the world and where things are happening around you, then your sense of peripheral vision working with your central vision, because they are two different neurological systems, mm. has to be working properly. And often, after concussion, those two systems don't work together too well. A bit of a disconnect there, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess one of the things that I'm taking from that is that you actually need to be really solid in your foundations, as you say, the eye movements, the accommodations, virgins, BV stuff, before you can, for want of a better phrase, maybe elevate to that sort of next level of care. Is that that fair? That's very true. You can't just walk in and do a course in neuro-optometry, for instance, and then be able to manage the issues you see. Um, And some of the things that we see in practice uh, just don't make, you know, logical sense in the, you know, from our graduate education of optometry. For instance, people find that some people with these issues, they're walking down the hall and the walls move or slope mm. or objects jump at, jump out at them. They find that being in busy environments like a shopping centre makes them sick and nauseous. Mm. So, and yet that doesn't, you know, really, how does that make sense? They have problems walking straight and they bump into the door frames as they walk through them. Why does that happen? Uh, so you need to have a sense of the complexity of how vision works and how your brain uses that to function to be able to diagnose and treat those issues. All right. So people are listening and going, oh, my God, this is too hard. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. So why don't we try and break it down a little bit for our listeners so that maybe they can at least take the first step when it comes to some of these conditions that, you know, that we're talking about. So, for example, if we talk about something like migraines, um, what are the sort of things perhaps that they should be asking patients and what are the sort of things that they should be testing for patients as, yeah, I get regular migraines or, you know, migraines have just started. Um, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about incident in that aspect, what they should be thinking about. Sure. Well, the, the problem is that many people call the very different headaches migraine um, because it's, you know, they've heard about migraine being a bad headache. Mm-hmm. Um, when a patient reports migraines, I ask them to tell me about the migraines in their own language just particularly the type of headaches they have. So Mm -hmm. they describe the headaches, they tell me where they are, how often they happen. And then I ask lots of questions like, when did you first start getting headaches? Did Mm -hmm. they happen when you were 10 years old or or you're now 40 and they're just suddenly happening? Because most headaches, migraines, real migraines, start before the age of 20. And any sudden onset of headaches, which people call migraines, after that age are a potential concern. The other question you might ask is, is there a family history of migraines? Because migraine often runs in families. Uh, I asked, when you get a migraine, do you see flashing lights or broken glass or rainbows or other visual things like a patch of vision disappearing before your headache starts? Because migraine with aura is potentially more of a concern than migraine without aura. 
And typically, aura or loss of vision starts before the headache, and any aura or loss of vision after the headache starts is a potential concern. So you can differentiate on that, that sort of question. The other questions I ask routinely is when you get a migraine, do you get sensitive to light and noise? Do you get nauseous? Do you have to go and lie in a dark room, sleep it off? Do you feel washed out afterwards? And more importantly, again, do you ever experience slurring of speech with an episode of migraine? Do you mm-hmm. get tingling of your face or lips or hands? Do you lose a part of your vision which lasts for hours? And these are neurological signs that associated with any migraine, again, raises your level of concern. Concern, yeah, for sure. But the, the most important question with migraine is, has the frequency and or the severity of your migraines increased or stayed the same or decreased in the last year or two? Because any increase in severity or frequency is a warning sign potentially of other issues. What, what about in terms of, um, so that's, I mean, that's a very succinct, very nice summary of, I guess, what you asked. What about in terms of the primary clinical tests? Well, basically with, with migraine, the first thing is about the history. And as people have heard me lecture before or say, I'm very big on history. You just ask <laughs> lots of questions. Yep. And if, if you're not sure what to ask, then rather than thinking, oh, what could this be? You have a pre-prepared list of questions you might ask in certain situations like this. Yep. And there are resources around for that. Checklists and, 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 yep, checklists checklists. and those sorts of things. Yep. Exactly. And the and it's really important when you ask these questions that you write down the answers. It might be, yes, I, you know, I wake with a headache during the night or no, I don't, things like that. So that you've got a record of the fact that you ask the patient these questions. Mm-hmm. So if you ever get sued in the long run by, or complain about TWAPRA, then you've got a record of what happened. And I presume you've seen that on the other end, people that don't have the records from, you know, what, you know, the experience you've had in courts that, you know, it's, yeah. that's probably your, we always say that's your biggest defence, right? Your record yes. keeping, your record card is your defence. Exactly. And even even in medicine with my work uh, with Medicare many years ago, um, looking at fraud and sober servicing and optometry, the biggest issue, and even in medicine, is poor record keeping. So yeah. once you've done your history and recorded the results, you then do a comprehensive assessment of visual health and visual, sorry, ocular health and visual visual function. So you do front to back, biomicroscopy, pupils, retinas, um, visual fields if you can, and then um, just making and do, making sure that and recording that ocular health is normal. There's no signs of uh, pupil reaction problems or afferent pupil defects or optic atrophy or or papilledema. Once you've got a record of that, then you've done your job in terms of, if you like, protecting your backside, to be blunt, mm-hmm. that you've yep. done a good job as an optometrist. All righty. That's, uh, look, that's a comprehensive, I guess, you know, short snapshot executive summary around migraine health, which we be asking. I think probably even more concerning than that and one that probably keeps most optometrists up more than any other condition, Steve, is probably a patient that has a tumour, patient that they've missed that may have a cancer. And that's yep. probably, I think if you, if you surveyed 10 optometrists, at least nine of them will say that that's my biggest fear, that's my biggest concern. Uh, in, in your in your experience and the work that you've done, what's missing? What are people missing? What should be what, what should optoms be doing that they're not to make sure that they don't have symptoms of a tumour? Sure. Well, as an optometrist, we don't have to be paranoid to check every patient as far as possible and send them off for CT scans if they have a slight headache. But there are things that you can do, again, which are 
sequential, organised history taking and assessment to check them out. So we have responsibility to detect signs and symptoms which significantly suggests the possibility of intracranial issues such as a brain tumour or an aneurysm, mm -hmm. good history, good ocular health. So asking lots of questions and particularly things like, do you get double vision? Do you get a loss of vision which lasts for a while? Do you get headaches particularly when they wake you up during the night, they're so bad? Or do you wake up in the morning with a terrible headache? Because intracranial pressure with a brain tumour goes up during the night. So it causes the headache. In children, I particularly asked, does the child wake with a headache or vomiting on the, in the morning particularly? Because that's a sign of raised intracranial pressure potentially. Is that child or person otherwise healthy and happy? Or you've got a child who's really lethargic and very unwell. Is there any neck stiffness, which is a you know, common sign of uh, brain issues? And then you do your comprehensive assessment of ocular health and visual function again, looking for, you know, diplopia, looking for papilledema, checking visual fields and recording all the positive and negative results. So, Steve, look, common theme here is history. I think, uh, I think you've given the, the case out of the bag for you. It's unearth most of what's going on. Enough questions to say. Sorry, I missed that, Simon. I'm saying is like that history, history, history is is the is the key to it, and that's yes. where you understand most of the of you look. Yeah, the I mean, not ophthalmologists I used to work with in the Kimberleys used to say to me, if you ask enough questions, the patient will give you the diagnosis ninety uh, percent of yeah. the time. Um, <laughs> so it's just a matter of knowing what questions to ask, and as I said, checklists make it easier, and with time, you get better at knowing what questions yeah. to ask. It's quite routine, yeah. Alrighty, let's take another one. Uh, look, often, you know, we will um, we will ask. They might have photophobia. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that is distinguished from different from what we call pattern glare? Yeah, so photophobia is light sensitivity, typically outside in the sun. People have to wear sunglasses, whereas pattern glare is photophobia, but it's extreme. And they have problems even inside with fluorescent lights, mm -hmm. with flickering lights, such as if you're driving through the country road, the light flickers through the trees. And even to patterns of light, such as patterns in carpets or striped shirts, which make mm -hmm. people feel headachy and sick. Um, often people with pattern glare are sensitive to patterns of light that exist in lines of small print. They're like stripes at a certain size, and so they see the words moving or jumping or swirling or giving them a headache. Mm. They have problems with print scrolling on a computer screen. Um, they're often really sensitive in supermarkets or shopping centres due to the combination of lights and movements lights, and noise. Yeah. yeah, and fluorescent lights particularly. And so pattern glare is due to a condition called cortical hypersensitivity, which is like a sort of a chronic pain mechanism. The brain becomes hypersensitised to light and in some cases to noise and touch and it's associated with lots of conditions like migraine 50 percent of people with migraine have um, pattern glare epilepsy concussion whiplash and about 50 percent of people with autism have pattern glare you did mention the um, the 
you mentioned concussion earlier and concussion for anyone who's following sport has become obviously a very big issue. Um, you know, younger kids, you know, bringing up through the ranks, um, all sorts of contact sport, not just AFL. Um, often we see some of these players go, oh, there's, you know, a 12-day rule or a 14-day rule and then they're back on the field and they're, you know, butting heads again. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how concussion relates to sort of the, the visual effects and the visual impact and, and whether or not, in fact, concussion, you know, and then the effects do resolve naturally? Well, good, good question, Simon, because it's certainly, as you say, getting a lot of attention. Um, in one study in the US, uh, almost 20% of adolescents had had one diagnosis in their lifetime and about one, six, one in six of adolescents had had a concussion in the last year or so. The problem is that once you've had one concussion, your reactions are slowed and your ability to not have another concussion is is reduced. So, you know, you end up, you're five times more likely to have another concussion in a short time. The other part of that is that once you have one concussion and you have another one, the effects are cumulative and it takes smaller and smaller knocks to have a bigger effect on you. So the the current example is Will Perkowski, the Australian cricketer, who has had 10 concussions and has just had to drop out of selection for Australia because he's got persistent symptoms. Um, Nine out of 10 people who get a concussion will have vision problems. And the problem with that is that rest is always not always a complete cure. Um, Something like one in three people will still have vision problems more than three months after the injury. Now, the problem for them often is that they have, this goes on, they have an MRI, a CT scan, which shows nothing wrong. Mm. And so they're told that there's nothing wrong with your brain, just have to get over it. Yep. There's a saying in this field, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because there's no MRI sign of a problem doesn't mean the patient doesn't have problems. Yeah. And so we, our job is to sort of find out what's going on with their vision and how we can improve it to improve their symptoms and to get them to get back to a normal life as well as they can and to get, you know, quality of life, which is better than it has been. Um, vision, the most common symptoms of, sorry, signs of, of symptoms of vision problems are headaches and eye strain, blurred vision, pattern glare, movement sensitivity, Hmm. brain fog and concentration issues and people often get irritability and balance and vertigo and dizziness and even sleep disturbances. So there's actual acuity issues, Steve, not just neurological symptoms, but in fact actually acuity symptoms? Yeah. The most the most common effect, a visual effect of concussion is an accommodation dysfunction. Yep. Now, the majority of people who get concussion will have a problem with con- with accommodation. So, in fact, I wrote a chapter on this somewhere in the textbooks. The textbook is Visual and Vestibular Consequences of Acquired Brain Injury. Mm-hmm. And commonly, you also start to see convergence problems, which are secondary to the accommodation problems, but they're different to the convergence problems we see in people who haven't had a brain injury. Strangely enough, people often get esophoria as well because of the accommodative effort. Yeah. They start to get headaches, which are often called migraines. And uh, as a result of all this stuff going on and the fact that they're not getting better and the doctors say you're okay, they start getting depression and anxiety. Uh, and they can also domino, start- It's a domino effect. Domino. And of course, that, that puts the stress on them and makes things even worse. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a, unfortunately a common problem is getting more recognition. And the other, the extreme example of this, of course, is the um, 
the people who've had a number of concussions which cause early onset uh, Alzheimer's and uh, depression and anxiety and even suicidal thoughts at times in America, particularly amongst American footballers. So there are now rugby union, rugby league, soccer and American footballers, of course, who are suing their employers for the long-term effects yeah. of these problems. And so um, I guess was your was the premise of what you were saying that, that some of these um, visual effects of concussion don't resolve naturally, they just they persist? Well, they persist, all right. I mean, much of our practice these days from Pater and I is uh, people who've had concussion for more than three, sorry, visual effects from, from concussion mm. for more than three months. So I saw a guy last week who's had five concussions over the last year and he is now cannot work, cannot drive, struggles to go outside, um, cannot read very well because his vision problems are just so incapacitating. Wow, it's absolutely debilitating from what you're saying. So, oh, yeah. Um, look, so... Steve, we've, we've discussed migraines and tumours and patent glare and concussion and a lot of our listeners are going, this is way too daunting. And I know at the beginning we said, you know, we said, you know, you need to have an underpinning of, you know, a solid foundation of your, you know, eye movements, your AV, your BV stuff, all that kind of stuff. But um, if somebody was really keen and inspired to develop skills and experience in this area, how do they start? Okay, so... Again, you can start with the basics, uh, which are almost an advanced competency of optometry in terms of accommodation, vergence, binocular vision, strabismus, and visual processing. And I have to be blunt and say that ACBO does a lot of education in that area. Um, I started in this process when I finished my fellowship of ACBO in 1988. I spent time in New York working at the university there and worked at the Veterans Hospital. So I saw what my colleagues were doing. And after that, Daryl Guest from University of Melbourne and I started a, a, a conference which had 180 Australian optometrists turn up in 93. Mm -hmm. And we then started courses around Australia. But it is a complex process. Um, I found that after that, even I spent a lot of my time just going to conferences, reading uh, textbooks, reading journal articles, and dealing with each patient as they came and learning from each patient yeah. on the basis of what I already knew. So at the moment, many of us who worked in this field in Australia and New Zealand have been to America to what's called the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association, which is a multidisciplinary group which provides education. So we've been looking recently at ways for education in this area to become more accessible in Australia. And so that because there is a really great need in the community for optometrists who really have advanced competency in this field. And so I guess the question, the answer to that is what's this space? Yeah, look, I mean, from what I'm hearing, the answer is read more, learn more, put yourself out there. Every patient has lived experience. Every patient will add to your knowledge base um, and search out and seek and you will find, I guess, when it comes to this space. It does. And I think the, the first thing to think about is that you're not just dealing with patients who've had a major car accident or concussion and they turn up on your doorstep. If you ask every patient you see, have you ever had a concussion, a whiplash or a head injury, you'll be surprised how many people volunteer it and didn't think to mention it to you because it happened last year or five years ago and they don't associate that history with some of the symptoms they have, which you may not associate either unless you ask them that question. Yeah. 
Steve, it looks like we've almost just scratched the surface of neurooptometry and neurorehabilitative optometry. Sounds like we had talked for a long time more. We, we will hopefully do that with you in the coming uh, in the coming months and years. So we do thank you for your time. We thank you for um, uh, joining us on the Institute podcast this, uh, this uh, today, and we look forward to hearing from you next time. Thanks, Simon. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. All righty. For our listeners, thank you for joining us again on the Institute podcast brought to you by Optometry Australia's Institute of Excellence. You can find this podcast on our online learning platform, lms.optometry.org.au or on our Spotify channel. Until next time, all the best. Thanks for tuning in to Optometry Australia's Institute of Excellence podcast. Don't forget to navigate to your CPD learning plan on optometry.org.au to write a reflection on this episode. To find more podcast episodes, visit the Institute of Excellence online at lms.optometry.org.au. We welcome your feedback on this episode and any subject matter suggestions for future podcast episodes. Please send your feedback and suggestions to national at optometry.org.au. Stay tuned for more in the weeks to come.